0: Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we have a special treat. I have the great pleasure of interviewing a friend named Claussen Smith. Uh, he's written a book named uh, Passarilla, A Time for Tomahawks. Now, before I introduce, or I'll introduce him a little bit. So, Claussen is a man who hopes for a future of wholesome family barbecues, effective conflict resolution, and he writes a book of comedy. In his own words, Claussen is a man bursting full of creative and family-friendly ideas. So Claussen, welcome. How are you? Good evening.
1: I'm doing just fine.
0: Excellent. Well, this book is a lot of fun. And we had a a conversation right before this where I think uh, I can say that Claussen is a man of great vision and virtue. And I think that you guys, everybody listening is going to learn a lot from what he has to say. And now to start with, This is Claussen's, well, certainly not his first book, um, but it's a successor to a book called Goonhood, um, which I had the pleasure of reading a few years ago. Um, And it seemed to me like Goonhood was a book designed to draw out or to exhort its readers towards a certain kind of disposition or kind of habitual tendency towards how they see life and act towards the world. Whereas this book is much more about action. It's not just about saying like, well, you should think this or that. It's, it's sort of laying out how we can act in our troubled times. And I think we'll talk about the troubled times very soon. But before that, I, w- I was wondering for readers who have not read Goonhood, but who have seen Passarilla, could you tell us a little bit about what it means to be a goon? Um, like, yeah. Yeah. Tell us. Wh- yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: well, first off, I'll, I'll have to um, separate the notion of the goon from the gooner uh, as our as your dear listeners may be aware of, there has been a change in the internet verbiage. Uh, and as we are dedicated uh, content slaves to the system, uh, we must be aware that uh, the Zoomers have created a new term called gooners and gooning. And I will not go into specifics of what this is. Uh, oh. And <laughs> it is not, that is not what I'm advocating in my book. It came no, out before. It's not. Not. Yeah. I this my book precedes the new term. Uh, so they, I think the the greatest way of describing it and what really inspired me when I wrote Goonhood uh, was this small passage from uh, Jonathan Bowden who says, truthfully in this age with uh, those with intellect have no courage and those with some modicum of physical courage have no intellect. If things are to alter during the next 50 years, we must reembrace Byron's ideal. And that's Byron as a Lord Byron, the writer and thinker uh, and skull taker. Uh, the re embrace Byron's ideal, the cultured thug. And, and that's really where I got the idea uh, of Goonhood. And, and to kind of paraphrase some other writers, the, the Byron uh, or the Byronic ideal uh, is something to the effect of, uh, of, of a violent man and a man of action. Uh, somebody who does not sit idly by as things unfold around him. Uh, it's somebody, and it's not someone who's an, impulsive, And uh, simply just to be a a bludgeon for like a a criminal lord or whatever uh, henchman. Um, The cultured thug is someone who I'd say is a little bit more independent, uh, is self-aware of his violence and and not to be the cheesy ex-military like influencer who talks about like you know, you gotta be a you gotta be a, a guard dog. You have to be a, a shepherd. You know, yeah. What, what do they call it? You, have, you gotta be like a sheepdog. Be a sheepdog. Uh, not not like that at all. I think it, I think that a lot of guys, uh, and this is a kind of term that's come up more. I guess I'm using a lot of like internet, uh, a very online uh, words here, but a sensitive hashtag sensitive young man. Um, A lot of guys who I'd say find ourselves in these circles or, you know, stumble our way into, you know, the online right wing or even just into the right wing in general, they're usually readers. They're usually pretty, I'd say, usually pretty intelligent guys. And I would say most people, this is just kind of like a maybe like a a Petri dish of the average young guy population is not very, very well versed in violence. And at best, maybe he's done some light martial arts. So, you know, that's the difference. It's not, it's not being a soldier or being a, a simple henchman uh, to the system. It's being someone who's not only capable of violence, but in a lot of ways is uh, he's embracing that uh, sort of more primitive man that uh, isn't over moralizing for that or not uh, compelled by that uh, over moralization of uh, of action. I think that that's something that I would distinguish between, say, like a culture thug or a.k.a. a goon and uh, somebody who's a, uh, you know, basically the wit dog of the system uh, and a slave to, uh, say, Uncle Sam uh, and will only raise his AR-15 um, in order for him to, uh, you know, to shoot the uh, bad guys, whoever the government tells him who the bad guys are. Um, so he can get his uh, McDonald's bucks at the end of the day. Not to make fun of anyone who's like in the military or anything, but you know, there's a, there's a clear archetypal difference. And I think that the reason why I push really hard on the cultured thug, I think, as well, and like the again, my word for the cultured thug being the goon, is that the goon is is usually a guy who starts off more maybe scholarly or maybe more intelligent. And a lot of those guys, they don't, you know, the sensitive young men, they don't really resort to violence as quick. They think they can outthink it and they think that they can sort of be protected from that. And uh, I, I think those guys should go uh, bull rush directly into MMA and get themselves uh, into a lot of uh, physical confrontations and scenarios. Cause then they'll come out to be, um, they'll come out to be this new man in our modern age. And that, and that's where, I mean, that's where Goonhood really, that's been the crux of Goonhood. Goonhood. I don't need to really say any more, I think than, than what I just said without, you know, ruining what I've already written. <laughs>
0: Interesting. So <clears throat> that makes me think so cultured thug. So then it seems like, is it easier in your view to be a thug and become cultured than it is to be cultured and become a thug? Like it, would it be easier for a, vice versa, vice versa. I think it's easier, I think it's easier than to become a- than it is for a book reader to become, yeah. well, not simply a bodybuilder, but somebody who is yeah. prepared to, defend themselves in a serious way. Or anyone
1: is capable of anyone is capable of being a thug and being violent. I think that's very easy. I think that the the big stepping stone for a lot of if a guy is more uh, is say cultured or more, you know, sensitive or or uh, a softer spirit is simple experience. That's what that's usually what what bridges that gap. I think there's probably some argument to be said about, you know, the shape of the skulls. <laughs> of the uh, of the thug the uh, genetic thug versus the genetic uh, scholar but I don't I don't see any reason why a, a scholar couldn't be a, a warlord and uh, to I, there's no real like phrases or quotes I can attribute to this but one of my favorite uh, writers in series is uh, it's the black company by Glenn cook in the main character uh well, the main character, of the first, the majority of the books, is actually a, a medic, a physician, who ends up becoming sort of a warlord, and he's like the archetype of that, where he's like this kind of very thoughtful, uh, you know, writer, historian, uh, medicine man, and then kind of has to take the mantle when it's called for, and he's capable of extreme violence. So,
0: interesting. I mean, <clears throat> I, I don't want to belabor the question too much, or something like that, but. Mm-hmm. I just do wonder, I don't know, maybe being a sensitive young man myself and having, you know, try to do scholarly things for a little bit, like if it is harder to access that thuggish side, once you become accustomed to like the library and accustomed to a kind of quiet life in which there isn't really that much conflict in which like, even when there's like scholarly disagreements, you know, sometimes people will. Get like fired up like I can't believe this person said that we're like th- like the tolerance for conflict can be so low sometimes, and there's like such an emphasis on a kind of like politeness or civility or something along those lines that I don't know maybe maybe I'll say something bad by myself uh, along these lines um <laughs> I I solution.
1: Lo- we're just gonna we're gonna strap you to a parachute we're gonna drop you into uh Africa. And you can get to role play blood diamond for the next six months.
0: <laughs> well, I don't, I don't doubt that um, if I could survive, that would probably be the best way to prepare myself <laughs> for that kind of thing or, or to use violence. I mean, maybe just like, I just remember killing a mouse with a shovel relatively recently and like not finding it very pleasant or, you know, just, uh, I don't know, which, which again, I'm not saying that I think that's probably not the right response, but I think there's like a lot of sensitive or there could be many sensitive young men who don't even want to kill a mouse with a shovel to just like break its bones and its body. And it doesn't move anymore after that. I, I know that there's a lot of things that you can do to habituate yourself to the encounter with violence or something like that. But I do wonder if like those who are cultured are farther away from being physically capable. And c- because like lifting is one thing yeah, like that is a good thing. Like Like, I, you know, highly recommend that obviously, but I suppose, but it seems like there's a big gap between lifting and being, knowing that you're the kind of man who can win a fight or something like that. Like, I don't know.
1: I I think it's uh, a, no, I I think that's a very honest assessment. I think a lot of guys, I think there's a, a great fantasy where there's this glory and I think there is glory. In fighting, I think there is glory and all these things, but it's a glory that comes with a cost. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you know, it's a little bit different when you've, when, like, say, uh, your first time hunting and you're taking down like a big animal and you harvest it. Uh, like I did a, an elk hunt since the last time we spoke, and uh, it was a pretty eye opening. Uh, I mean, animals don't die pleasantly, <laughs> so uh, you can go uh go on YouTube and look up uh you know videos of uh bears uh you know disassembling a deer's uh you know a deer's spine in <laughs> someone's backyard slowly uh and painfully uh I, and I don't think torture is something that that anybody really I think that a culture that uh abhors torture is a probably a worthwhile society because torture in itself is I think it's the antithesis of, uh, of like sentience because it's not, it's not pulling away. It's not, it's not useful to torture. I mean, it's useful in, in some contexts, but in general, it's not useful. It's, it's for pleasure. And I think anyone who really gets pleasure out of torturing is, um, I wouldn't even say just a psychopath, but somebody who is uh, clearly like, a, or a culture uh, there's something deeply wrong with it. I don't think there's ever been a culture that's really promoted uh, torture to a large extent that didn't have some great repercussion for it, uh, or didn't have it coming to them. So I think that, that the, the reason why I push it, I think is because, and this is, you know, obviously into the point we're going to get at, at at some point you hear about the situation we're in, is that in the environment changing environment we live in, uh, in the modern day and especially in the post COVID world is that we kind of have, I would say we have to, uh, we have to acclimatize ourselves to this violent reality because we're going to see violence in our future. That's not we're not going to be prepared for. We're going to see like we're going to see bridges collapse and people hurdling at eighty miles an hour in a aluminum can with an engine inside of it, smashing into a you know a, a retaining wall and seeing humans like pulped like you know the inside of an orange. Uh, thrown at a car, you know, we're going to see, uh, I'd say horrific things. You already see this coming out of China, but I think as things decay more and more, and they are decaying, we are, we, this is just an obvious fact that we all see it around us. We talk about it all day. Uh, as we see this more and more, not being accustomed to the sight of blood or the absence of life, like the sudden quick, you know, uh, touch of death. I think that's why I felt, I found this very strong impulse. And, and obviously I wrote Goodenhood, you know, in March of 2020, when everything was locked down because of COVID, I clearly had that on my mind um, when I wrote that because it was like, well, we're probably going to see a lot of dead people. We all thought there was a the giant plague. So, you know, lo and behold, it was supposed to be more of like sort of a white pill or more of like an optimistic outlook, but more of a hey, we need to really just in, just not enjoy the sight of blood, but just get used to it, get used to these things, and so that's why I, I, I strongly advocate for the cultured man. And the sense of young man to become the thug because those are people that I think are our best shot. Uh, I think that a, a thug can become cultured. I, and I have no doubt. I have many friends who are like this, but there's always going to be a different they're going to be a wholly different person than the uh, than the former uh, quality sure. wise.
0: Right. Right so so like the cultured person might have a clear sense or a clear view of like what the purpose of their violence would be or like what it's oriented towards or
1: they can take a step back know. and understand the situation a lot better. There's someone I, I trust a lot more on my side than a, like a dumb trigger puller or a contractor who just really likes smashing things with the sledgehammer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I suppose yeah. we love those guys and we, we do need those guys.
0: No, yeah, it. I I hear what you're saying, and and maybe maybe we can actually touch on the last question I had in mind because maybe it just like fits so well with like your the borrowing the Bowden formulation about the cultured thug mm-hmm. um, before we move on to like what the contemporary situation looks like, and then your idea for a positive sort of like white pilled response in light of the various dark things that have come to pass, but. Um, I'm I'm curious what you think. Um, and I think this kind of fits between thug and the cultured man is something like, what do you see as like the relationship between instinct and reason? Um, or like maybe another way to put it is like, how do you make sense of yourself as a book writing barbarian almost, or something like that? Or like, how, how do these two things fit together? Um, or like, yeah, how does, how does the book writing person or the book reading person gain the kind of will if, if such a thing can be gained or gain the kind of acquire the disposition or like, yeah, how, how do these two things fit together? I mean, sometimes I think about Rousseau or Nietzsche, I don't know, like Rousseau talking about the natural man sometimes, the way that he's just reliant on instinct isn't thinking too much and is able to like live a happier life because he relies on instinct alone but it seems like it's very difficult to read one's way or think one's way back into like a fully instinctual life. And I don't think you ever even say it's possible or even recommend trying to be fully instinctual. It just seemed to me there are a few times in the book where you really praise instinct or intuition over and against calculation and reason to some extent. And I'm just like wondering like what, what you see is like the relationship between instinct and reason and how much a cultured person or a reader or some sort of pseudo scholarly type or something like that, like how can they return to the extent that it's possible for a modern person to their instincts or allow their instincts at least to guide them a little bit towards some kind of healthier form of life? Or I don't know if that question, I want to, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I think I, so I see, I see, logic, reason, and rational thinking versus instinctual thinking, or or, insti- or, or just instinct and intuition as, as two separate things. I think the former I've always seen, and I, I think uh, especially later on these last couple of years, it's become more apparent to me that these are systems of thinking with synthetic guidelines and borders, um, and they can be useful especially in like a a business context or, you know, from day to day, they can be extremely useful uh, for people for planning out their life, whatever. Uh, I live my, I live my life by the seat of my pants. So I don't, you know, really use these. But then the second one, the latter, I've always kind of really seen uh, instinct as sort of a, a primitive intelligence gathering. And what, what I would always say is, I mean, to rely heavily on your instincts or say to, to write a book. I mean, what is, you know, where is the harm in reading a book or writing a book? And this is, this is my challenge for anybody who would say like, well, this is, you know, how's that instinct is that your ancestors, especially once you get far, you know, you get far enough that you're, you're talking about pre-civilization were extremely intelligent, very well honed, very instinctive people. And they would, you know, obviously try to understand their environment and you have many cases where humans Uh, Even pre-civilization or, you know, maybe they were outsiders, barbarians to a civilization would quickly pick up languages uh, and they would even Mm -hmm. pick up writing of a civilization, like say uh, the Fertile Crescent. Uh, You know, there's instances where people would obviously do this and become aware of their enemy. Uh, I see no reason why somebody can't, you know, like, like what would your instinct tell you uh, if you knew you could learn about your enemy and you can learn a great deal about how he thinks, how the enemy thinks by reading his books or reading mm-hmm. books in general. And I think that's where I would, I would make the differentiation is because if we're and, and a lot of, obviously Pasarilla is I'm, I'm going back to the basics. I'm going back to, um, I don't mention it in the book that much, but a, a book that really influenced it was uh, war before civilization. And the reason why is because, you know, there's a couple times in that book where it really kind of takes a step back. It's more of an archeological book than anything. Uh, it, it kind of takes a step back and says, you know, really when we look at primitive man and the way that he gathered, you know, and in, in, in war is all about gathering intelligence. That's, you know, the it's understanding the landscape. It's understanding the people, it's understanding the, the circumstances and the most efficient way you can gather that intelligence and then make a decision on it. Um, I think that's, ultimately what we should all achieve. I think the problem is where people get wrapped up and tied into just reading books and they get tied into the over, you know, the uh, almost like over simulation uh, based on the the exercise of reading is that's like the, the masturbatory uh, exercise. It's, there's no real purpose for it. There's reading for the sake of reading, not reading for an exact reason. I think that's probably where I would say that's, you know, you can, you can determine, by instinct, am I reading this just for for pleasure or just to say I read this book or am I reading this because it's helping me understand uh, something that I do need to understand? I understand the layout of my environment a little bit better. Think a little more like a primitive man and think, is this an obsidian tool or is this like a glob of fat that I'm holding in my hands? And if it's not, if it's the, if it's the second part, throw that shit away. Like you don't need that. And I think that would be my advice for you know anybody who's like, you know, reading too many books and doesn't gain anything from them. I don't think I've read any books in the last year or two that I thought, wow, that was a waste of time. And mm-hmm. I could have gotten, you know, more uh, of an insightful education by staring at, you know, uh, planes or I could like stare at a, a McDonald's drive-through line and see people going in and out of it and just the different colored cars. Like, <laughs> no, if that's, the, if that's your takeaway, of how a book was to you, besides like if you're just reading for fun, like then there's no point. Throw it out.
0: Right. Right. So like there's like some sort of like difference between feeling some sort of like social sense or vanity of like, well, I read this book and now I can be honored for like knowing its arguments, as opposed to like some sort of like internal genuine need or something along those lines.
1: And and maybe even like or just like, become the... a tool at your belt, is what I'm trying to say. Right. It should become another tool at your belt, at your disposal, at your mental disposal. That's, that's the difference between, you know, whereas reason and, and the, if you're going to take a book and say like, you know, for, for just the sake of reason, uh, or, or rationality, uh, th- then there's no point. Uh, I think that it's just, it's, it's, it's for the sake of it rather than for a, a specific reason. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Cause well, I, yeah, sometimes I think about like it's like, if you're not thoughtful enough about like why you're reading, it might not be so useful to you because like, if you, if there's like something you're trying to understand or a problem, like a practical problem that you want to solve or something along those lines, it seems like your reading can be much more conducive or helpful to your thinking or something like that, that like you can read a lot without thinking very much. And so it's like, if you're not thoughtful enough about why or how you're reading, then it's sort of, I don't know. Like reading,
1: fruit. reading is the most advanced form of technology we have, intelligence-wise. Wow. There's nothing we have because, and um, somebody said this much, much more, uh, <laughs> uh, much more comedic than me. Uh, you may have known him. His name is Sam Hyde. Uh, he had a really good uh, on one of his podcast episodes. He had a very good point. You uh, may not have to agree with everything he says, but at this point, a really enjoy. And I think this is, he put it very succinctly, which is that when you read, it puts, you know, it's, you're writing, you're reading words on a page or on a, whatever it is, if you're doing a, a tablet or whatnot. Uh, and those words, the way that your, your brain is processing, I not have to get too reddit here or anything, but you are basically projecting these words. You're engaging your consciousness in a way that is extremely, um, energy, uh, consuming and it it's mentally consuming and you have to place yourself on a, uh, almost like an astral plane where you are considering these ideas and ruminating on them. And that's something that, you know, you like, and he makes fun of like, you know, where uh, video games are like, Oh, we have a VR headset where you can like eat food. And it's like, <laughs> it's just a shittier simulation of your real life. But like maybe with like swords or, you know, or you're a whatever, like you Mario world. And you're, you know, getting jerked off by some, you know, some anime girl, or getting jerked off by the raccoon from Gardens of the Galaxy, and you're eating your your uh, nutritional, uh, you know, zog slop. Uh, that yeah, great. Like that's ph- that's phenomenal. That's that's shittier than real life. You know, nothing you're doing is actually more thought provoking. Not even thought provoking. It's it's uh, it's not mentally engaging. And writing still, and that's why I again will go back to what I said, Guna, Like writing. Like words are like runes, and runes are given to it by gods. The ability to form ideas off of mere symbols is truly still incredible, even mm-hmm. though we've had these for thousands, thousands of years. So, yes, I think that a, a barbarian who understands the runes is not a bad barbarian. He's mm-hmm. a good barbarian. He should be. He's a shrewd barbarian. That's why. That's what's in the book. <laughs> Something like that. Be
0: good. Well, so speaking of, you know, VR headsets, (laughs) you know, are doing things, you know, in a way that's like shittier than real life. I mean, I wonder then if we could move to thinking about, uh, the way that Passerilla or any thoughts that you have outside of Passerilla in addition, um, how you outline the signs that you see that indicate indicate the kind of trouble that we're in, because I know that as we said earlier, and as you've made very clear to me, the book is designed, to lead you to act in the world and to change it um, and to make it otherwise and to make it better. So the book is designed to be a white pill, but it seems to me it might be good to talk about the circumstances that we find ourselves in, especially because I think you gave a pretty illuminating account of our circumstances. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of your comments in the book um, about crumbling infrastructure and a failure in the United States. Uh, not, not that that's the only place that this is happening, but, but you can see it every day if you live in the U S um, like to secure basic things like water in various regions and food that like um, I think you had talked about this as a kind of age of hunger. And that in a certain sense, it, it's not as if there's like, I mean, who knows maybe there are, but it's not like uh, the United States is really going to fall because of like some conspiracy, That comes from a cabal, but rather just this growing habitual, like ineffectual approach to acquiring the basic things that like make civilization possible. Like, if you can't maintain your roads, you know, if you can't maintain the capacity to like drink water, I mean, it's just like that we don't even know how to like properly solve the problem of the belly. Like, the United States seemed to have like gotten past that and now it's like returning to just the problem of feeding ourselves again, that that's now somehow or is going to be potentially difficulty or especially with, yeah, like you said, with water. I mean, there's like a lot of, it seems like, you know, things about like, uh, like the water infrastructure in the U S and things like that. So I'm just curious if you would be willing to say a few things about like what the contemporary situation looks like and what you take to be the core problems that might lead to if not a catastrophic situation, a kind of, you know, very slow, ugly, boring collapse or something like that, or like how, how these things look to you? Uh,
1: okay, so, you know, there's a lot to be said on this. And I think there are a lot sharper people who, especially on Twitter, who have covered this very well, who continue to cover this. And I would recommend following them. Uh, there's a certain uh, dog themed account. Uh, perhaps you follow him. Uh, he has uh, done a very good job of uh, of covering these things. Uh, another friend of mine, uh, I think his uh, account, I can't remember his handle, but it's, uh, Enoch Powell, I think his handle is Enoch Powell's right. Uh, he also does a very good job of, of kind of forecasting and we, we've kind of gone back and forth on some things. But I'll just say this, as far as there's two examples, I'll say as kind of like a analogy or maybe like a, an example of what I mean by how things are starting to fall apart. And these things have been going, these have been in the works for a long time. Um, so the first one I'll say is, so on the water issue, you have, there's a, uh, there's an, a reservoir, an aquifer that lies below Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, I think it's the Ogala. And it's the biggest, it's one of the biggest aquifers in the country. It is also one of the fastest draining ones. In fact, actually, I believe they don't, and I, I, you know, if I'm wrong here, someone can correct me uh, you know, who listens to this. Uh, it's, <clears throat> they don't even know how much is draining uh, at, at <clears throat> any given time. And they, all they know is that every time they check the levels, uh, it, it just keeps going down. What most people don't realize is that this aquifer, you know, many aquifers in the water tables in the United States, as far as we're aware of, they were all filled by the ice age. So they came from a giant melt. They don't. They're not replenished every year. And a lot of these, because I've gone through, and uh, I, I just kind of had this like uh, autistic stint this last year, uh, partially due to where I live, which is very arid and relies on a vast, uh, almost a science fiction level of water infrastructure. Autism to route water thousands of miles away from its original destination to deliver to, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Um, that Reading about the, you know, I read some things about the, from the Bureau of Reclamation, um, about just different departments in the United States that deal with water. And uh, I was also inspired heavily by a book called Cadillac Desert. Uh, I found out about from a podcast called Myth of the 20th Century, phenomenal podcast. And the book as well is very, very well written. It's actually a very good, very enjoyable book to read. It's not dry at all. It's not Scholarly or academic. It is, but it's it's not written in a dry tone. It's actually a very fun read. Um, a lot you of school duggery. And, and yeah, yeah. School skull, duggery and treachery and corruption in politics. But the in the book, it basically talks, or not in the book, sorry. It, it, from, based from the book, I started reading into this. And really, I mean, there's a lot of money being funneled into these programs to uh, rehabilitate our you know, water storage and these aquifers. But I I mentioned in the book that they're like liquid gold, that they're, it's like the oil fields. You know, it's, we're we're running out of actual liquid oil and we're resorting to shale uh, and we're resorting to uh, basically having to create oil uh, from rocks where with water, we have no way to, to recreate it. And the other problem is recapturing. So on one side, you have this in the, you know, the desertified regions or the the Arab regions of the United States um, and in the world as well, if anyone's copied us, which by the way, that's what I'm, when I'm talking about this, you know, in the book, I'm obviously talking a lot more to, you know, my American readers and and people in the West. But remember, there's only two systems of infrastructure that people have copied uh, besides now the Chinese, which is one, Americans, and two, the Russians, because the Soviets built a lot of infrastructure uh, in the 20th century. If you're in one of those two groups, chances are if it was the United States, it's the United States engineer code they're trying to follow and they probably did a shitty job of it. So if they built a bridge in Africa like they built in the United States, it's going to last half as long as we built with, you know, twice as shitty the materials. So go figure, you know, there's there's going to be some issues with that. Uh, the, so the one example I have is the aquifer on the west side where we don't have enough water. And on the east side, I'm going to bring the example of New Orleans where uh, they were, the the levee, so you know, pre katrina the levee that they or the levees they built around it did not stamp to code, and basically you had feds that were telling the state of Louisiana and telling the city of New Orleans, "You have to fix this. It's going to break at some point. It's not even it's not even doing its job right now. Let alone when a hurricane comes through. Lo and behold, Hurricane Katrina happens, completely demolishes and devastates it, which it's still a, still recovering to this day. However many years, like 17, 18 years. Oh, it's going to be actually what almost. 20 years. They'll be like 20 years mm. in 2025. Um, wow. that they still to this day have not fixed that problem. Like they 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 did a pat like they did a shitty band-aid job. And that's with any infrastructure in the United States. If you if you talk to anybody who works on these projects, if you look up anything on this, that you can look up the uh US uh I think it's a quote a quote like the US civil engineer, uh whatever it's called, uh it doesn't matter. Uh, literally anywhere you read is just talking about that specific topic is falling apart. Great. Well, then who's going to read, who's going to fix it. And that's the problem is that, you know, we're talking uh, when you're asking like, well, what, what's our long-term problem? Is it, I mean, we're just kind of seeing a thousand little failures and I don't think it's going to be one thing. I don't think the water is going to be, you know, I think, it's kind of the, the what we were talking about earlier, which is the the basic necessities for a civilization, like you said, like thinking on the belly. Uh, we have we have we've grown too accustomed to think of complicated solutions to simple problems. And we don't have adequate minds to address the problems. All we have are bureaucracies and money to throw at said problems. So what we are resorting to is a half-assed job if at all we can solve that problem and that's just for every single problem we have going forward we're an old country uh, not old by civilization standards but we are an old country uh, as far as how our system works Uh, our population that built this country is going away and if not they are no longer uh being integrated into the system In other words, you know, you're not seeing a whole lot of civil engineers come out of Dartmouth or uh, out of Yale. Like you're seeing crypto engineers and you're seeing, uh, you know, basically the uh, older brothers of money Twitter uh, going to work for JP Morgan. You don't have these great uh, American minds. And when I mean American, I mean of European descent or at least relatively European descent who believe in these things, You cannot just simply import the third world and expect them to fix things that their country never had. If they're copying us for our infrastructure, if they're copying us for their system, we are the originators of it. We are the ones, like the caretakers of those ideas. So that's kind of, that, that, that in a nutshell, like the demographic drought, uh, the, the brain drain, the failing infrastructure, um, the, 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 the necessities as in food, water, shelter, all these things are failing. I mean, our electrical grid is, is you know, the rating on it is very poor. Our substations are very vulnerable to attack. Um, I don't believe that the food infrastructure was being targeted. I don't think that uh, Bill Gates is trying to starve um, 7 million Mexicans in the Southwest. Uh, I think what it is, is it was a combination of accidental failures and maybe corporate espionage. Maybe some like cyberpunk, you know, Tyson chicken. Uh, is trying to go after I don't know who the rival of Tyson Chicken is, but we'll just say the Dinosaur Nugget Corporation and their, you know, that's their way of duking it out is, you know, capitalizing on the uh, supply chain problems post COVID. I don't know. But I think that these are, there are people who have said it very well. uh, And, you know, I think that um, I have a quote in there about like small conspiracy of dunces, opportunists and cowards. Uh, I think, you know, to quote a, a friend from Twitter, I think that's realistically what we're kind of looking at, uh, and that's what I, hmm. I see personally. I don't, I don't see Grant. I mean, there is conspiracies, but I think this is the the more. If there is a conspiracy, these are the this is the outcome. If I'm wrong and it's not a great conspiracy, I'm still right because these things are still happening. Right. Oh, so I'm always right. <laughs> 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 I'm, just, I'm just kidding, but, they, but we all see it. So it's like it, even if there is like this great conspiracy we're still going to be dealing with these no matter what. Right. Whatever way you look at it. Right. I mean, um, it's still a butthole. However you paint it, cheek <laughs> you look at still the butthole is still there.
0: Right. And, and I'm sure that other people talk about the sort of material circumstances that could lead to a kind of downfall of our Leviathan or something along those lines. But it seems to me that maybe, well, and maybe this is just what I'm familiar with, but so many other people focus So much on the moral disagreements, because I, I, you know, I've heard some people say something to the effect of, it seems like to some extent in the United States, there are maybe deeper moral divides now than there were during the civil war, because at least like the North and the South during the American civil war, like agreed about what a man and a woman is and like who their God was and, you know, things along these lines that there were moral differences that were, you know, maybe important, but. Uh, now, I don't know, like there, there can just be such radical moral differences. But nevertheless, like, but that's, but that's an important,
1: important, but that is an important point because there's something that I forgot to touch on, which is that in the post-COVID era, because me we were talking about this before we started the podcast, is that there, there is a sort of, uh, there is this post-COVID, uh, we called it the, the COVID exacerbated the vices of, you know, Americans or would just say the first world. Where right, yeah, that like a divine, that it's
0: almost like a friend of mine had suggested, like COVID, almost is like a divine punishment. That like maybe divine punishments, as opposed to like adding new miseries, just exacerbate the sins or the vices that you're already participating in, and it just accelerates them to some extent. Yeah. Right. I don't know if COVID is a divine punishment, but nevertheless, you can see how it did. Exact- but it, it
1: operates like it, and what it does right. is it's is the miseries. I think mean, this is a very important point. This is the part that. What you, what you just said is what led me. That was the 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 seed that was planted in my brain by my one of the tens of millions of voices in my head that told me to write this book, which was that the vices in creating the miseries are creating a miserable and pliant or malleable population of people that we have seen similarly. And I don't think anyone will disagree with me here that during COVID we saw this where people really started to break down, and we really started to see some social decay and some social order collapse, uh, and which is why I, you know, that we started to see that the crowd and the mob really started to to gain some steam and traction, and it was all because it, that all these people were simply toppled like a little blip. In their lives, a, a, a tiny, microscopic, in the in the in the grand scheme of their life, if you looked at their entire lifetime, one single little diversion from the path as COVID happened, and all of a sudden everything gets upended, and they become basically a slave to whatever grand movement is happening. And I think that combining that with all their miseries, and that again, you know, with all these other things happening with our economy and the infrastructure is that you're basically creating a population ripe for revolution. And uh, that's where I, in the book, I talk about, you know, the very beginning, I talk about Gustave Le Bon and uh, this book, The Crowd, The Study of the Popular Mind. And also there's some other books by him uh, that, uh, that really uh, detail us as well um, and, and do a really good job. But, but that kind of, that mentality of like the revolution, uh, which is the same thing you saw in the Republic of, you know, the French Republic, and uh, the the beginnings of their basically like uh, you know the pre-communist communist revolution and the psychology of the crowd that's that's what we're starting to see. So kind of to I mean bridge that if you want to take that anywhere that um that last part talking about the the moralizing in the psychology uh, moralizing in psychology uh I guess my phone decided it was a uh, fight time because it started playing my uh, fight playlist. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, it's like the Skyrim, uh, like combat music starts playing, uh, and like looking around to see if there's a, a threat nearby. Uh, the, the, the idea of like the, the social infrastructure going away, being completely upended and eroded and this mass of people who can basically be swayed by like whoever has money, uh, you know, you can, your mind can wander at the possibilities of say, Biden offering a check, like a small check, a, a, a plebeian amount of money, $1,000. If everyone went and marched on the streets against white supremacy tomorrow, you'd have millions of Americans who do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they're so desperate for cash. And that's, you know, that, that kind of, um, so that like moralizing or the, the moral arguments, I don't even really, I'm not even going to like uh, go after people who do that because mm-hmm. even though I think they're kind of getting in the weeds, uh, and they're getting lost in the sauce uh, mm-hmm. on that topic, they still mm-hmm. understand to some degree that the moralizing, or they, they kind of have this in their heads, like, well, if we create the right moral argument, then mm-hmm. we can sway this this crowd. We can sway the angry herd from destroying itself. Mm-hmm. And I, my opinion is you can't. So you just need to prepare for the crowd. Right. Like okay, a chainsaw. <laughs> Many men with many chainsaws. <laughs> this is not, this is not advice. This is a comedic relief program. We're right. maybe human, but all godlike. Um, right. Right.
0: Which takes us to, I think maybe the next thing to talk about, which is like, so if, if things are getting this dark and the crowds can be that pliable. And as you bring out now that I'm remembering in the book, like how uh, this sort of decentralized character or like how atomized people feel, um, Sometimes like maybe the proper response, So, if there's all these dark things happening and, you know, maybe as I think you were just pointing to maybe complex moral arguments are not really needed, you know, just like is like we don't need complex solutions to getting food and water and fixing roads. Like it's it's probably relatively simple to to do that kind of thing, but we make it more complicated than it is, or at least some people do that in a way like the proper response in light of the difficulties that we've highlighted or that especially you've highlighted. Um, is to find our friends, you know, like uh, to form a posse, uh, you know, a a kind of tightly organized group of friends that can depend on each other.
1: Well, it's Um, a club, you know, it's just a a social club.
0: Right. No, it (laughs) is. Yeah. It's a social club devoted to conflict resolution.
1: Yeah. Nonviolent. You're creating basically a small group of business consultants (laughs) that are uh, dedicated to, uh, you know, long-winded conversations and, uh, you know, lifting their fingers uh, as they drink from their cups of tea. You're not, this is nothing, you know, this is all very uh, um, kosher stuff we're talking about. It doesn't violate Jewish law at all. No, no, no violations. Uh, I'm totally okay to go into the uh, synagogue tomorrow. Um, I am, you know, my other, my other book is Goyhood. So uh, <laughs> we'll go, I won't go into it though. Um, well, the, the, I think that, that there, I've talked about a little bit before when I first, when I first kind of got the idea of this book and I'm not going to go in much into it because I think there's much better. There's more interesting things to talk about, about the book or just about in general. But uh, the real idea from it was I was inspired more or less by uh, a few influential writers. So to answer, I guess, one of the things we want to talk about is uh, there's two writers in particular that, uh, one that really only kind of briefly wrote about this and kind of left almost like a a mission or a challenge at the end, which I kind of took and I really ran with it, which was Bronze Age Pervert, uh, who we both enjoy his work. And um, obviously that's how we, you know, you guys found me. Uh, was, was through him. And uh, at the very end of his book, he says, you know, that I'm going to butcher it so you could probably uh, do a much better job is some of the effect of that, uh, you know, young men need to take to the seas, you know, Bronze Age piracy, You know, the Bronze Age collapse is coming yet again, which by the way, uh, if anyone reads any about the Bronze Age collapse, which I did went and read a few books on it because it fascinated me. I'd never, I mean, I never encountered it. It was all brand new stuff to me is that during the Bronze Age collapse, you know, there were hundreds, thousands of kingdoms and f- chiefdoms and fiefs and, you know, compounds, uh, f- you know, whatever you want to call it, statehoods, uh, city states that fell, uh, put to the torch, destroyed, uh, you know, earth was salted and, you know, corpses left in, in, in mountains, you know, and, and, and who survived, right? Like what happened? uh you know, no one really knows exactly what precipitated it. You know, we'll probably still be in the weeds on that one, or still trying to figure out what exactly happened. But the, you know, what we really do know is that the people who survived, people who thrived, were uh, were were warrior classes or warrior cast who essentially were able to, you know, bounce from one area to the next. Who were usually highly mobile uh, and uh, were not able to be bogged down. Um, these were not soldiers. These were not uh, guards or bodyguards. These were not kings and these were not farmers. Uh, they were a, a their own cast of people who essentially, uh, I would say, probably were are the first examples of barbarians that we uh, are, I mean, that we're well aware of, where they existed outside of the system. Uh, but they were, you know, again, like a like a goon, they were capable of extreme violence and they basically like, kind of pillaged or they, they capitalized on the failures of these different states. Uh, again, there's no moral, they had no moral quandary doing this. They just kind of, it was to exist and survive. And they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was uh, everything I read about the Bronze Age Collapse talks about this. So we talked about the end of this book where he's like, I'm encouraging this. This is my vision. This is what I think is going to happen. I resonated with that. I thought that that was, I thought that was very poignant. It was like, that that is what we need, right? This, You know, there's no... Um, there's no, uh, at the end of the day, there's no Jordan Pearson amount of cleaning your own butthole, uh, and scrotum that's going to get you, uh, out of the future bronze age collapse and all this kind of independent thinking, you know, is great and all for, for self-reflection. And there is, I think a lot of, to be said about, um, you know, especially far East, uh, approaches to, um, you know, self-improvement or self, you know, not, not, cause self-improvement gets a lot of, you know, gets shit on constantly and a lot of it does deserve it. But there is an element of self-improvement that is good uh, that people need. It's very critical that they understand this. But I think that the, the end of the day, the, the movement, the crowd, the group, uh, the clan, the posse, they're the people who, you know, they have the best chance of surviving and they, they, they typically make history. In fact, actually, they always, I mean, there's always great men, And, you know, there will always be great men that will rise above the ranks. But, you know, it's from clubs and from organizations and groups that these men come from. So that was the first influence. Second influence was Clay Martin, uh, who is a dog. He's a he's a good dude. Uh, I I talked to him on the uh, brief occasion and he came out some really good books during COVID, right before COVID and during COVID, which was concrete concrete jungle and prairie fire. And they were more of like this kind of uh, like prepper. Uh, style guidebook on how to kind of create your own uh, like sort of militia uh, in response to say that, you know, concrete jungle is more like shit's going down. This is how you need to prepare for it. Prairie fire was like, it's happening. We're, you know, we're seeing it with the rioting and all that kind of stuff. And like, you know, some of it can be, you know, seen as hyperbolic or like dramatic and fantastical. But I think that cause his experience obviously as a, a former, I guess he probably always a green beret, um, special forces for I think he was special forces for like it was over a decade. Um, and he has some really good insights into that. And basically, like his whole thing was you need to get your guys together. So I actually went and did that. I took his advice and actually applied it during 2020. After it came out, the Goon had like kind of created my own goon gang posse, whatever you want to call it. And I had a group of guys. And then I realized as I was learning how to manage it and how I was, you know, how I was running it and, and to this day, we still have it. If we were, uh, I'm obviously, uh, I've moved away from them for a little bit. So I, I've put someone else in charge for the, the meantime, but, uh, we were, you know, doing all the things that I talk about in the book. I think we're pretty sufficient. We obviously have a lot more we could do and I'm not going to go into it. I mean, it, this is kind of my own personal thing. It's, uh, not what I, what I talk about it a lot, but, uh, I realized that I could – that this is – I would want to live my own advice. So I sort of give me some ideas for Passerilla, which I realized is kind of almost like a prequel to Concrete Jungle and Prairie Fire and then almost kind of the sequel or like if you took that last segment of Bap's book and you extrapolate that entire book, that entire idea of like creating the Bronze Age. Like how would you do that? How would you go and find those guys? Besides like being in the military already and being – Foreign Legion or whatever, which I, I still think a lot of that stuff is, uh, is also fantastical because a lot of guys will tell you that, you know, a lot of the military right now will, will crack down on any kind of organiz- organizing or organization, um, uh, based on political ideals or anything that's not strictly military and they go, are going after guys a lot, especially after COVID. Right. So. Interesting. Yeah.
0: I mean, it did, it did strike me <clears throat> even before we had talked that some of those closing pages of BAM, even even just like some of the very wholesome advice about, you know, starting scouting organizations, you know, or just, yeah, groups of guys that help um, defend like a violent street or something like that. I mean, there's just like various like suggestions of how one might start a very small group of men um that would like work together maybe they'd work together in more covert ways but like outwardly the group would look a little bit different but yeah it seemed to me that pasta was like you just said a book length account of how one might um put together a group of friends uh uh to do yeah very nice like wholesome things together yeah. And
1: it's a it's a long care business that's that's <laughs> what that's, that the whole book is dedicated towards you can turn, I mean, all jokes aside, I mean, really all I'm giving in this book is how to, it's a template on how to create uh, a, an organization. Uh, male organization, we'll be specific here, not, not you know, I mean, I, I put in there that women are very useful and they should be associated in their own way, like not as part of the core group, like they're, they're a, uh, they're, uh, 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 what would you call it? What would you call it? Um, they're the secondary, whatever, like support group for for your posse, but your posse, you could, you could take this and you could turn it into a business. if it, Really, if you wanted to, or you could turn it into an outdoor club or you could turn it into a, a modern day, a USA scouting organization. I, I don't even mention it in the book or I may mention it. you know, I was in the boy Scouts mm-hmm. and I'm an Eagle scout. It was very big mm-hmm. in my family and, You know, come are the old school scouts, you know, like the the old school guys, uh, ex-World War II vets that were into the, you know, mountaineering and bushcraft. And for the record, in my book, I actually quote one of the co-founders of the Boy Scouting Organization. Um, And he has a pretty phenomenal I I barely barely uh, mention him, but he uh, he has a great book. Um, It's uh, it's Frederick Russell Burnham. And the book is called "Scouting on Two Continents." Very good book. He actually has some very cool little insights too on, you know, how to lose trackers and, you know, how to stay alive when Apaches are hunting you and things like that. Uh, yeah, man. Man spent his life uh, running from Apache and dodging them in their own backyard, and then, uh, you know, as like a twelve or thirteen year old or however old he was, you know, carrying messages from gold companies or something, and you know, the uh, uh, Pony Express, and then went on to go to Africa with. Um, uh, I can't remember his name. Uh, well, anyway, uh, great, great book. But anyway, I, I, the, the scouting organization was, it, you know, that's, this is basically like the, the adult version of that or how yeah. you could kind of put together something like that, but you can really go wherever you want to template, you know?
0: Right. And, and, and something I admired a lot about the book is something like, I don't know, there's all these people who are, you know, whatever, like doomers about the contemporary situation, but then you think about like, okay, so if we did not have food and water and the infrastructure broke down and like law and order, well, was, you bring out, you know, almost like in the first opening pages of the book, even, you know, something like that, there already is something like anarcho tyranny, like heavily present that, uh, you know, some groups are allowed to do whatever they please and other groups are tyrannized over, um, that, like, you can't really defend yourself. I, I think the situation you give your you gave is something like, oh, uh, was it like a your car is being broken into?
1: Oh yeah. Either you let <laughs> yeah. people
0: steal things from your car, which is bad, or you stop them from stealing stuff in your car, but the law will come down on you, which is also bad. So do you want to be like a pathetic loser and just lose your stuff? Or do you want like the law to come down upon you because you were like strong enough to like defend your property or something like that, that like, that that really is the situation. I mean, like just if, if nothing less or nothing else, like the Kyle Rittenhouse trial seemed to be like the example par excellence or something of that, of like three pedophiles attack you on the street, you know, or something like that, like, uh, and you just merely defend yourself. And I know he crossed state lines, but that's legal in the United States. So I'm not, I'm not too broken up about that. Um.
1: Well, there's other ways like there, are they, right. And then the, one of the points I make in the book too, is that there are a lot of ways to go about that, you know, to defend yourself or to, uh, you know, kind of continue your, your existence, uh, you know, sans getting as a, I think what you meant by that was uh, the, the, you know, uh, the, I think the analogy or the, uh, what I call that your Japanese junker into a kinder egg. Um, that's, uh, I think we were referring to uh, your, the little uh, Hyundai being broken into by uh, the, the diverse uh, neighbors down the street. Uh, wonderful migrant boys. Sorry. Wonderful migrant boys. We love our wonderful migrant boys. Um, they, you could, you know, you could deescalate. You could do a lot of things that would not result in what happened. Not, not to say Kyle house did anything wrong. He didn't, but you could do a lot of things differently, but the worst way to go about it is by doing it yourself, because no one's gonna watch your back, and no one's gonna no one's gonna keep their their eyes open while you go to sleep. And yeah, you do have to sleep. Everyone has to sleep occasionally. So, uh, when while things continue on this path of you know uh, the wonderful migrant boys are allowed to engage in PvP mode, and we're stuck in PVE <laughs> mode, uh, you know we are not allowed to go and shoot up uh, a gas station and then ask for reparations. And, you know, because we did it, uh, we still have to follow rules, you know, that don't make sense, which means we have to start thinking kind of outside out of the box and think a little more creatively. And, you know, the in my opinion, there's no negative to, to having a group who can back you up. There's no negative at all. You can take it as far as you want. But at the end of the day, this is, as I say in the book, this is the most primitive beyond your 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 core needs which is like your your food your water your shelter your your safety your your health but part of that safety is you know the earliest forms of of uh you know human uh uh, groups and of the human race is of tribes chiefdoms uh and uh, uh groups uh you know small hunting gangs and it's always been like this. It's always been join my group or die or join, you know, whatever it is, uh, uh, or, you know, we're going to go uh, brain the guys down the, down the river. Are you in or out? And you're never going to run away from that. That's our nature. We're a social being. And so why fight against the, why fight against the, you know, go, why try to swim up wherever you may as well. It's like, it's the old saying, beat them or join them. But it's like you're joining your own club. You're starting your own club. And for what it's worth, you know, I'm not trying to say that I'm, you know, any kind of visionary. But the the American Revolution and the founding fathers were at one point really just like a book club, if you want to put it that simple. A book, you know, book club and a like a you know shooting uh, club to some degree, right? So,
0: right. Well, so so maybe this takes us into something. Well, a little bit different, but not that different as far as like social organization is concerned. Um, now, I uh, I don't remember all the details of Goonhood. I mean, I, I haven't read it since twenty twenty. Oh,
1: you're going to bring up the Mormons, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. From um, the Mormons, man. All right. <laughs> I don't know on. Yeah.
0: Well, so it seemed it seemed that Goonhood had featured what I took at the time to be a mostly negative assessment of the church of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. Um, But here you seem to, now it's not as if like you're saying like everyone has to join the Mormon, Mormon church, church, (laughs) church, if you want to survive. So it's not like an unqualified praise, but you do note that they have fairly impressive social infrastructure. And I was wondering if you could talk about the shift maybe between the goonhood presentation of the Mormons and the Passerilla presentation. I think maybe in Goonhood, you had suggested there's certain ways in which the Mormons are unable to resist certain regime pieties or that like uh, the religion didn't give them enough of a resource to resist like left-leaning opinions or something like that, that they want to be guided by revelation from God, but really fundamentally, they're slightly more governed by political opinions or social opinions of the day or something like that. But here it seemed to me you had more praise than blame in the second book. And I was just curious if you wanted to say anything about the difference between the two presentations, because in a certain sense, I don't actually see a disagreement between Goonhood and Passerilla. that maybe both of these things could be true, that there could be impressive social organization on one hand, and yet ultimately an inability to fully resist regime decadence on the other. Like they could fit together but I was just curious if you wanted to talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I saw this coming a mile away. I think anybody who's read Goonhood is going to. I've actually had some already reach out to me and, and said kind of the, the similar thing. And he's like, "Bro, did the Mormons? Uh, they knock on your door? Did the Mormon FBI knock on your door and threaten you to?" Uh, whatever, disbar you from the Sons of the Pioneers or whatever it is. But, uh, you know, since we last talked, uh, I have a confession. Um, I have been named the Mormon Medici against my will, as is not my doing. Uh, it's partially because I am descended from both Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, who are both like the pivotal prophets of the Mormon Church. I am from both their genetic stock. Therefore, somehow I am... Like the Prince of Mormondom, the, the black <laughs> Prince of Mormondom, that even though I don't want to be. Uh you know, black is in like the black sheep, not like black skin, obviously. Um <laughs> so uh you know, I, I think that I I think that like ethnically, I am still a Mormon. Mm-hmm. Uh, not like I am ethnically still a Mormon. I think that Mormons do have a very unique uh genetic structure in the United States. I think it's if you look at a map of demographics, like Anglo is almost entirely in Utah. And if you actually look at the old school founding stock, and somebody actually didn't know this before I, uh, when I wrote Goonhood was that I did a little bit of uh, DNA and ancestry and found out that uh, a few of my ancestors actually were uh, from the original, they were the original colonists uh, and they eventually made their way up to New York. And then they made their way to Tennessee and Kentucky and they made their way up uh, to the West, to Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. So That's my, my family. And, you know, I think a lot of that founding stock, Anglo founding stock resonate. I mean, it is in my blood to to some degree. I mean, I, I, you know, you kind of have to admit or accept that that's just the way it is Mm -hmm. and you can't run away from destiny. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what I kind of try to do is I, I, when I wrote, you know, if you want to dive in my head for a little bit, my alien brain, you know, (laughs) when I, when I wrote this part, I, you know, I'm giving, I'm trying to give guys tools for, you know, how to, you know, in, in you know, in the book, I actually go over like recruiting guys. I go over kind of like social etiquette. Um, some, I call it like primitive, like skull cracking salesmanship, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, different ways to approach this. And then kind of towards the end, I realized, you know, you need kind of somewhat of a, a, a foundation for social fabric. And I, and I don't really go too in depth with it. I think what I really kind of just said is like, look. A high-functioning, high-trust society that's built from the ground up, that's very economical and very efficient, that places the incentives of, you know, holy reward on, you know, kind of as an accountability on its members, it's kind of hard to ignore how well-built it is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's kind of where I ultimately had to accept the fact that, you know, where I come from. They do a pretty good job. I mean, you know, if you know anything about Mormons, they are incredible business people. Uh, however, don't get in business with them if you want any advice. And by the way, that's coming from uh, all of my Mormon friends and family members who have ran businesses, <laughs> because they'll try to get handouts and stuff. I call them crypto Jews for a reason. Uh, they want uh, they want free stuff. They want that. They want the nepotism discounts. They want their uh, temple recommend discounts. Uh, but other than that, I mean, they they, they run a tight ship. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, there's a reason why in the military and, you know, obviously, like, you, you know, Glowies and uh, the uh, the Feds uh, admire um, the Mormons in their ranks uh, most, you know, more than anyone else. And I don't think it's for the reasons that I call Mount Goonhood, although those are still very apparent. Like the uh, Mormon nerd, as I talk about it in the book, that that's still very much a real thing. I'm not shying away from that. I still firmly believe in that because I've seen too much of it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there is that sort of structure and that uh, kind of diligence and it, the kind of the, you know, whether it kind of falls in this kind of like do gooder uh, too afraid to say no kind of personality, you kind of see it the more nerd versus that just someone who grows up in a system where everyone is expected to pull their weight. And there is no excuses. And no one has a bad attitude about it, which I think is also a very important part. There's always this very optimistic, very kind of cheerful, uh, almost homosexual way that Mormons go about uh, <laughs> doing their tasks. And, you know, I think that there's there's really something to be admired about that. And, uh, I mean, as I've kind of toured United States and I've now lived in, in several different, very different places here and kind of seen these different subcultures, it's always the Mormons I've reverted back to and said, these are the people I want my neighbors to be right? These are the people that I want to, you know, have yeah, my back, so to speak. And, uh, you know, there's actually a, a Mormon that I, he's a, the lone Mormon in the desert that I've met out here. And uh, I, I talked to him about my book and it was very funny because I, you know, we we're talking about, cause he's a, uh, he's an accounting and uh, you know, I was kind of making jokes, about like not to, you know, hire a Mormon who's an accountant and, you know, we we're just kind of laughing about that. And I was like, no, nah, I mean, I probably would actually, you guys are pretty squeaky clean. And he's kind of like, a, he was kind of you know, we're just kind of talking. and He looked at me and he's like, you know, he's just wild how, uh, like, how going from this, you know, to this culture where everyone's trying to hide everything and how poorly run it is and just how I took for granted what I had back home in, uh, you know, in the land of Zion. And I think that that, you know, kind of speaks to where I kind of like reflected back and said, you know, I kind of thought similar to, to him and it kind of struck a chord in me where i said you know i have to give credit where credits due. it's a good system you don't have to join the mormon church please don't join the mormon church because i said in my book i mean join if you want to i don't care what you do uh but it, if you're it, if you're reading if you're confused by this what i'm trying to say is that you can take things from this and you can plant it in your own garden so to speak and do your best to emulate parts of it because Again, they run a tight ship. They start businesses like you and I go and just take a piss. Like, we're really, they're really good at what they do. And it's important to learn from those who are successful, you know. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, to, to quote myself in my book, you know, old atavisms die hard, harder than your childhood dog being run over by a drunk neighbor. I am predisposed to fill the footprint of my ancestor like rain does tracks in the mud. So... I'll just try to do my best job being a non-Mormon doing Mormon things.
0: <laughs> yeah. I I had talked to somebody who just knew a lot about the like Mormon youth, social infrastructure and like, I, I don't, I still don't know very much about Mormon theology and I'm not that interested in really going into it, but that's that if the reputation is like, there's a kind of crazy theology underlying this. And you know, like if Mormonism and I did, I, I'm such a, idiot like i assumed like you know many years ago that mormonism was basically protestantism like oh that's just another protestant branch as opposed to a group who's like claiming to be the true revelation like the successor to catholicism which is no longer the way like it was but no longer uh it had deficiencies it had to be corrected um or something something along those lines That, that it is the one true faith by its own account as far as i understand but that like if or to the extent that it has kind of goofy theological features, then it's kind of remarkable that, as far as I understand, like it, the, it's growing, like and they're able to like retain their youth fairly effectively, and that they mostly, mostly, you no, know, yeah, yeah, I'm not saying aren't sure people fall way. away, right? But, but just maybe, maybe that like they spend a lot of time thinking through how to create events and like regular things for the youth to do. So that even if like not all of those who stay, stay for theological reason reasons, they stay, they stay for the social, social reasons. And that like,
1: they stay, they stay for that, for that network. Right. Because you'll, because you'll always have that. And that is an important, that's an important aspect to mention. Right. What I only mentioned in the book is that they're, they, they recreated their own scouting organization because the scouts went global homo. Mm-hmm. So you're correct. There, there is a, a very positive aspect of the youth for social networking. yes, I think anyone who reads my book should absolutely take a, a, a second glance at how the Mormons do it, uh, I, beyond, of course, the utilization of social capital they have, which or human capital they have, which is I, I would say, you know as important, you know, they mm-hmm. let nothing go to waste. Right. Like yeah, how the ancient yeah. Indians, you know, would even use the brains to treat leather. Like <laughs> them, the, the Mormons do the same way with their, <laughs> you know, child child labor. By the way, is is encouraged in the Mormon Church, just in different ways that get that they don't get in trouble for.
0: Right. <laughs> so, no, that, that's that's really interesting. Um, um, I think generally speaking, I think throughout this conversation, you've already you know mentioned throughout certain books or sources or guides that you gained a lot from while you were thinking through what to write in the book and that maybe taught you and and each chapter is given a preface you know by like a quotation and there are many quotations throughout the book in addition to those quotations um are there any other books that you are like highly interested in mentioning I mean it, it was kind of interesting how or at least to me how you had well, I suppose look to business or something like that with Andrew Carnegie, maybe. But also, you turned to you know a number of of left wing thinkers to try to I don't know. Well, which makes sense to me. Like they won, you know, like they're winning in a big way. So, like, why wouldn't you learn something um, from those who uh, seized control and are in charge or something like that? Like, you would want to know how they did it, and is there anything that you could learn in order to become in charge, you know, someday or something like that. So like, like Saul Alinsky and, and a few others. Um, is it Saul Alinsky? Is that even his first name? Did I just make that up?
1: No, that's yeah, Saul Alinsky. Okay, cool. That, that's yeah. cool. But anyway, well, you know, anyone named Saul is obviously a good person. So it's a good <laughs> instinctual, you know, hole that you just filled in right there. <laughs> so, so are there any like
0: other, books that guided you that you want to mention or do you like to bypass that question insofar as like a few books were mentioned along the way
1: well let's let's go to the few books because i think that most of the books i i read a lot of books that uh helped you know inseminate some of the ideas and uh helped me really kind of fill in the gaps here or really just inspired it but i think the ones that really deserve mentioning are the ones i have in there I and mean, there are some others but I, I don't really think there's as much that someone could glean uh, other than if they're really just interested in you know like i said like if you're i mean i read, i read about like you know there's a few books i read that weren't even really too they were relatable and they were good and useful but ultimately they, they may not just be as useful to somebody who's just trying to best understand how to build their own posse and how to understand how to win
0: right Right. Okay. So, so then we, we can
1: go, let's, we, we want to go to some of the, some of the quotes um, or go some to some of the, uh, the books. I mean, I can talk about this for hours.
0: <laughs> well, maybe since there is a kind of business angle to the book, I mean, could you talk about Carnegie a little bit? Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. So uh you know, Carnegie, you know, I, I, it's kind of funny because I think, so one of the things that when I first started writing the book and I actually was telling people about this when on Twitter you know while I was working on it, so it was kind of in the works and it wasn't it wasn't quite there yet, but it was it was on its way and um I, I told them like look, I, you know I'm reading you know Carnegie, uh, I'm reading you know the some of the early communists uh, I read Lenin. Uh, and by the way, I don't think that you know I don't think you have to read. A lot, I, I especially think a lot of the postmodernists are really useless to read because a lot of them are just, they're just self masturbators. And they're, I, I swear to God, none of them actually ever wrote anything that people actually can glean anything from. I swear they just were getting money, like funded from some benefactor. <laughs> uh, but even like Alinsky, uh, I think I bring up, uh, who else did I bring up in here? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Uh, you know, I bring up several Marxists in the book as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, oh, I bring up Trotsky. I brought Trotsky right. up. I brought, uh, I brought Lensky up. I swear I brought up uh, even Che Guevara in yeah. the book as well, because, uh, you know, all three of these people had us at some point had successfully infiltrated and used crowd tactics and psychological warfare to manipulate people, and there was something to be said about that. I'm not saying that we need to be doing exactly what they do, but you need to understand the playing field. Uh, and then Carnegie. Carnegie gets a lot of shit because he, he's this tycoon. He's this, you know, I, I don't think Carnegie would, you know, you and I would like Carnegie if we were in the same time as Carnegie. I, you know, he's obviously, a. Uh, you know, I think probably a pretty shitty person in terms of if you're going to moral fag about him. But very useful as far as, as anything business is concerned. And I think – Again, if it's useful in business, it's useful in your day-to-day human, you know, social interactions. Um, and for example, I mean, Carnegie, uh, you know, how to win friends and influence people. I think I was actually my, my father recommending me that book, and I think I immediately threw that in the the mental trash can uh, along with all the Ayn Rand that he wanted me to read. <laughs> and uh, the, of course, you know, the one book my father did want me to read was uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, his book on bodybuilding. <laughs> and uh, so it was like the three books. The three books were like Atlas Shrugged, How Influence People, and then, you know, whatever. Uh, the I can't remember the name of the, book, the R- <laughs> of the book. But I read the last one and then I ended up reading the other ones. But uh, just very funny that that, that spread of books, right. <laughs> what you thought would be good books for me to read when I was like 16 years old. <laughs> but, but Carnegie, for, for being the mega capitalist for what he is, understands that again, and these are all the most primitive basic motivators for, for, for man is that you need to entice people. If you want to make people like you spare the vinegar, don't, don't piss them off. And I am a confrontational person. I, if you know me from Twitter, I'm always constantly picking fights with people, but these are, you know, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it, but that's, these are not people I'm trying to influence or win over. Right. Um, what, you know, and I, I think obviously comedy has its place as well, especially if you're trying to appeal to the crowd, you want to make them laugh. And a lot of people don't understand this. I think this is kind of more of like a, a meta thing when it comes to commentary or, you know, when you're in a public eye of, of some kind. I've had a very, very small modicum of success. I'm a very micro, micro, celeb, micro, micro, micro e-celebrity on right-wing Twitter. But for what it's worth, when you appeal to people with, The honey, right? The sweetness. Mm -hmm. You will earn friends. You will win people over long term. And when you use the vinegar, use it sparingly or use it effectively. Mm -hmm. So Carnegie, I I think uh, everyone should read him. I think that there's no reason not to. I think he's uh, it's instrumental. Uh, If you have a hard time, I think a lot of people. uh, I I think it's a far stretch to say that a lot of guys who are online. Uh, you know for not don't think any of, the, of their own blame or to blame themselves That a lot of them have issues with you know social interactions, or perhaps maybe they have a hard time making friends off the fly and what I found is that uh you know just just trying to find something that interests those people you know mm-hmm. just trying to find something that, a common thread and 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 make it make it real like mm-hmm. find something i i i actually at my gym today i just I just met another guy. Who now? I'm gonna start, you know, I'm gonna start psychologically brainwashing him, gaslighting him, getting him to buy my book. No, I'm actually probably gonna add him to my potential list of recruits for my new goon game here, where I'm at, because he's done Muay Thai for 20 years. I was done martial arts for, uh, you know, 12, and we made it just a common link. We ended up actually sparring for a little bit, just really lightweight, fun. You know, we both were just like, just it was a good time, and uh, that that's how you do it. I mean, this is a guy I've never met before. Right, um, and, and that's you know, but it takes practice, obviously, and then that's a whole other game. But it's just understanding what people like and don't like, and I think uh, it, it's much more valuable to read Carnegie than say to watch a hundred videos of Andrew Tate, you know. And mm-hmm. that's part of my problem is of all these like, self help gurus and all these uh, like get rich quicks guys, and these all these these people trying to capitalize on you know, let me help young men understand how to you know, do these things. Like, let me help them like raise them like their father and like the Jordan Peterstein and all these guys. It's like, look, you know, that's all great and all, but none of you are really hitting on what makes people like you, Mm -hmm. you know, like you're, you're, you're going, you're shooting way over the gap or you're, 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 you don't understand at all. Like you you need people to like you, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can be incendiary, you can be a, a troll, you can be a uh, someone like you, can be like an Andrew Tate that everyone either loves or reviles, but they don't really love him out of love. They, you know, maybe they respect part of him, but you know, at the end of the day, they wouldn't respect him if they had to live with him. And that's the difference. That that's it's where you, if you're trying to win that person over, if you want this person to be in your goon gang, if you want this person to like be a ride or die homie, they have to like you at the end of the day. You, they can't just like find you amusing when you're, you know, saying incendiary things yeah so this is something
0: when i was reading the book i couldn't tell i couldn't tell if you and i disagree about this thing or not like maybe uh, maybe i'm wondering if like i use different words to describe the same thing and like i'm trying to be too diplomatic and paper over something or something like that so i'm curious so um uh, i don't know how to exactly put it but i mean so you had initially joked even just in what you were just like saying about like you met this like you know, cool guy at the gym and you had sparred, but that, you know, and I know it's like a sort of like a joke to talk about gaslighting somebody into liking the book or into buying the book. Um, Yeah.
1: That's just my sales tactic for, you know, all all of my readers are uh, they're victims of psychological abuse.
0: (laughs) Well, right. But so, so maybe, maybe I was taking some of what you had said, some jokes, like even I who am a lover of levity, maybe took some things too seriously, but like, Right. As far as friendship goes, like it, it is true. It seems to me that like, you know, you have to be likable to some extent, Mm -hmm. you know, because like you're a good, good person in the sense that like you are reliable, you know, or intelligent or like there's something to offer. But I, I guess like I was, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just be more frank. I'll be less diplomatic. It struck me almost that some of the stuff at the beginning of the book especially after you had mentioned reading carnegie sounded like uh i don't know like some kind of like spy who's entering places and trying to manipulate people
1: yeah yeah but that's on the other hand that's, that's cuz it kind of is well but straight, but up, even, straight up it kind of is
0: <laughs> but but it almost like seems to me that in talking to you you know before this and at other times and seeing the way that in a way like you speak or talk about your friends I don't know that it it seems like, or rather maybe I could ask you this. Does it seem like to you that it moves from a stage of manipulation towards like a state of trust where manipulation is no longer necessary?
1: Yeah. So let me put it this way, because I think this is a really important part. And I think this is a part that maybe I didn't say it outright, but Mm -hmm. it is important. You have an incredible power. If you, and this is going to sound like uh uh what I don't even know these people's names, but all these like, Oh, who, uh, <laughs> who are these like sales bros on YouTube who have all uh, that have these, like how I, you know, how I became the number one guy, you know, and, and join my club and I'll teach you the ways of the, of the force or whatever, you know, they're dumb, stupid. Uh, like I have the special sauce, but, but that being said, you do have a, a, a power and this is something you learn. And if, if, and this is what I've learned through the sales I've done. I work in a unique field of sales where you actually really have to sell yourself. Your product is extremely expensive and uh, you know, somebody will you, you're you're you can be a cheap whore, right? So someone has to really like you and depend on you. And and a lot of that, and I lean on that in uh, the, uh, the the poker chapter gambler, right? You do have to kind of, you do have to learn how to manipulate that's that is part of sales, and so you have this incredible power. What I'm saying is that I'm giving you that power. I'm telling you this is gonna work. Like this will work. If you had bad intentions, and you and you can find this out from other things, you'll you'll learn the psychology stuff. Uh, you know, and, and psychology is kind of like a uh, uh, garbage uh, field. It's not scientific mm-hmm. at all, but there is the the manipulation and the human psyche and the kind of uh, the little levers and things, pulleys in someone's brain you can kind of work on to get them to do things. Mm-hmm. You have that at your fingertips. A lot of people don't understand that. I think most people do not understand this. And that's why a true salesman, like a true actual salesman who understands that he knows how to kind of pull those little manipulative, you know, like those little emotional levers, it, given that the person's in the right time and place and, you know, how they're feeling and kind of work them into that, like, like clay, you can make them do what you want. But that's a power. It comes with great responsibility, right? Like you have to, you have to, you know, if, you know that's not to say that, you know, if you don't already have, this is, this is for people who may be struggling to, to find people that will actually work with them or people that, that uh, maybe they have a hard time making friends. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you're using the most bare bones, uh, most bare bone uh, techniques to maybe win people over, but don't, I, I think I say this in there, I say, but but, but, be careful because this should only be an intro. You should, and I'm you know, on the record, you should absolutely make a, an actual honest relationship with somebody mm-hmm. that, is, that is earnest and has integrity, especially if you want them to back you up, right? Because then they're going to expect the same. Loyalty goes both ways, right? right? Which a lot of employers don't understand this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What I'm saying to you is that I am, t- I'm giving people exactly what employers are giving to employees. I'm mm-hmm. offering you a paycheck. I'm offering you a lifestyle, a possibility. You know, they're, 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 you're, they're pulling your little strings. They're telling you, you know, I will get you, you know, come over here. I have the magic beans and you want them like, like, like a, like a dog. You're walking towards them. You want that money. You want that, whatever that is, but then they don't, you know, but that's just the entry level, right? Cause then if that employer treats you right and they, pamper you and they, you know, give you time off and they do all these, you know, they do things for you, but it's not, but you're obviously, and it goes beyond just being an employer. There's, there's a friendship there. Mm-hmm. That's what, that's kind of where I'm coming, coming from. And, and again, you don't have to take every single part of advice in the book. That's just <laughs> for the simple fact that this is how people work. This is how people think mm-hmm. in a very broad sense. And you know, like I, I say that there's a reason why, um, the, you know, how the, um, Jacobins, you know, how they think, how they, you know, using revenge as a great political motivator. It's obviously shortcoming. It's a very short lasting uh, uh, political movement because obviously the Jacobins got their heads cut off. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not telling anybody to do, you know, to emulate that. What I am saying though is that that is your opponent. You uh-huh. need to think like your opponent. You must understand the, the environment. Mm-hmm. So for the layman, it's, you know, don't don't become a you know don't become just a manipulator. Okay, the the book merchant memes aside, like I'm not, <laughs> which, which is right. totally fair. I truly do. Like I I I have a relationship with a lot of my readers and talk to them. Right. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say. I may, you know, this is nothing you know inappropriate. Or anything, but I, I like I talk to them and. You know, there are friends and th- there's been uh, a few of them that I've actually met up with and, and right. you know, there's actually one I'm going to their wedding here soon. You know, it's like, <laughs> and it, 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 that's how it should be, right? But right. sometimes I think some people need a kick in the pants on how to, to get their, you know, what they need to be saying and how they, they need to position themselves. And a lot of that first part of manipulation is the positioning.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I have
1: something you want, essentially. Right. Whether they know it or not. Right. Okay. So
0: um, I don't know. Maybe you can tell me if then we're looking at this in a similar sense or not. I don't know. Uh, Like, I I guess like when I'm, it seems to me sometimes when I meet somebody who is a potential friend or who strikes me as a potential friend, Mm -hmm. most of the time, I think it comes to light fairly quickly that they're a potential friend.
1: There are a few people
0: that I do know that I'm friends with who maybe it didn't seem that way at first. And it was like uncovered at some point um, that maybe like somehow I couldn't see who they were at first or something along those lines. But I feel like a lot of my, the friends that are the dearest to me or, or who have taught me the most or who I can rely upon the most are people who like somehow like within the first 30 minutes of knowing them, I was just suddenly struck like, wow. Like I, you know, there's like, some likeness of mind, not to say that we think exactly the same immediately about everything, but that you see that there's like some underlying or fundamental ideas that are really important or something like that. that we agree upon? And you can kind of see that that's the case. I don't know, maybe fairly quickly. I, and maybe right. I've been really lucky in this respect, but in that sense that like, I, I think that sometimes I, well, I, often don't you know give like the full expression of all of my thought like about you know various contemporary things or otherwise like very quickly so so maybe you can tell me if this strikes you as like how you approach things or not but like yeah
1: you let them talk just oh, yeah, to answer yeah. you let them talk that's that's how you do it I think well, you're like, totally right
0: Why well, I In agree that 30 that. Like, minutes you, have to, like, you kind let of let them... throw
1: little little hooks like little little baiters and see what they do you're yeah, because yeah,
0: yeah, you, you, you mentioned the book, like asking lots of why questions, like why, you know, mm-hmm. do you think they're like, why is that? Well, why is that? Like almost like a childlike question. It's like, well, why? And like that that can get somebody to reveal a lot and they enjoy the intention, the attention that mm-hmm. attends the question. And like we all like being asked questions, you know, like we, yeah, like it I, <laughs> I remember like my. Uh, I don't know. One of my family members that I admired the most was because like when I was just like a very little boy and he was much, much, much older, you know, just, just, I just watched him ask everybody questions and somehow he seemed to like actually care what they thought and like asked a lot of them. And it seems like that's in a way what you, the book talks about in part, but maybe, I don't know. And you can tell me if this sounds like a, like a word that's just hiding something. Um,
1: see, see Cerberus This is, I've turned this podcast against you. now it's inter- I'm interviewing you It's working. <laughs> It's working. <laughs> well, I've twisted you. you.
0: <laughs> but I was just going to say something like prudence, you know, like the in the sense that like. You have to be careful. Yeah, you exactly. Prudence. You yeah. have to
1: be careful. I to, to, Just to, to be the devil's advocate to what you're saying, because I, I know you're, I, 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 Where if I'm wrong, tell me if I'm wrong here, but you're saying, you know, why would you need to manipulate if the social situation. If you are, it's already apparent within a a very brief time, that this is a person you can trust, or this is a friend or whatever. And you know, I I don't disagree with that uh, entirely. There's been people I've met um, both online, offline, and then offline. If it was like an online friend I met in real life that I I said, yes, you were absolutely the kind of person that I, my instincts were right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's good judgment, but as I, the devil's advocate here, the devil's advocate here uh, in Goonhood, I say, you know, judgment is the is the most powerful tool we have, mm-hmm. right? Is to discern, right, and use a razor's edge to cut through the crap and find out what's true, what's not, right? I think right. in coming times, and especially now, the prudence is key to finding out if someone truly is someone you can rely on. And obviously, this book is not just about making. You know, this is a, obviously this is a family friendly barbecuing book. But, you know, if barbecuing becomes – if the grilling becomes dangerous right. or even lethal, do you really want your grill buddies to be people you haven't, like, truly understood or you you haven't asked the hard questions? And I think that that's kind of where you can really gauge that even on, like, a very primary, very, uh, uh, you know, early level of your relationship with them. And obviously because this is a – you know, you're – you're building this for a purpose. This is a tool. And I say in the book, you know, you people make friend making or whatever you want to call it is, is, it's like a lost art. And mm-hmm. this is a reason why we have problems with our labor in the first world is because no one knows how to hire the right people and no one knows how to find the right people or create the right company culture. And obviously you're learning what corporates at Amazon can't, which is you're learning what makes a good culture uh, in, you know, even on like a micro level. Um, I think that the devil's advocate is that there, there's a danger in not being able to judge someone and maybe sometimes circumstances uh, overshadowing or kind of blotting your ability to judge. And so sometimes it is important. And Again, you, it's, that's, this is the black and white scenario, but like, I think in a, more like the gray area, and there's a larger gray area and there's black and white, you know, you can simply let them talk and then explain things to you and mm-hmm. let them out themselves as someone that you can trust before you have to put yourself out, especially in the situation you might be in. If it's your work and you're worried about losing your job, if you express certain opinions, absolutely don't say anything or, or yeah. just make up, uh, make neutral commentary mm-hmm. and absolutely manipulate the situation that does not expose you to a potential like loss in your job. Like that, that's, you know, as outspoken in principle as I am, I am not an advocate for, you know, going and screaming, you know, that you're the, uh, you know, pulling like a, you know, the, like a Nicholas J. Fuentes and being an obnoxious little uh, tard and making it known to everyone that you are an obnoxious little tart. That's how you get, you know, that's how everyone you get flagged that way. And uh, as people have said way before, you know, I ever came on Twitter, you know, you, you kind of have to, hide your power level, so to speak. And, you know, it, this is, you know, just hiding it. Okay, great. Like you can live like a secret life, but you also, if you're trying to you find someone that you think is might be somebody that you can rely on, someone that like, say, when things get worse down the road that you could rely, you know, you could actually lean on, you need to kind of weed that person out. You gotta make some judgment calls on that person if you're gonna make that, take that risk. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling people to, to take that risk. I tell, I say in the book at the very beginning, take it or leave it. If you don't want it, you know, this is not for you. It's not for you. This is, this is something I thought was important to say. Right. So this is, this is for you. This is your kind of, this is your, your style. You agree with the ideas in here. You're going to be the best person. You're going to make the ultimate judgment call on who you're going to pick up. Mm -hmm. But you know, you should always, you should always be scrupulous and prudent.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah. So maybe to some extent, maybe the, apparent disagreement that's maybe not a disagreement was me uh, being a moral fag about the word manipulation as opposed to prudence because prudence sounds elegant. Uh, Yes,
1: but I'm crude. uh, Manipulation sounds low and vulgar. It is low and vulgar, but sometimes I am low. I am low and vulgar. (laughs) I'll admit it. So maybe, so to say one thing is to say
0: one thing uh, about Clawson's book, that I'm not going to ask him about but which you should buy the book for in my view is that there are like at least two if not more maybe maybe just two sort of like long vignettes that like really stuck out to me about a woman he worked for at a pool when he was very young and about a sort of like epic hike um and I don't know these were like two of like the high points in the book to me I mean and you can sort of see like one of these vignettes gives an account of the longhouse in this like horrible energy. Although you also see Claussen's like, uh, you know, manly self-assertion against these powers that were keeping him down in the case of the woman at the pool. But then in the hike, then the opposite of the longhouse, the kind of like ascent towards like some of the highest possibilities that a human being has at their disposal. So I'm not going to ask Claussen about these to talk about right now, because I think these are just like two really longer, beautiful passages in the book that if, if you've listened this long um, like these are like things that we haven't talked about at all that I think are talked about at length. And there's, there's a lot of like really good stuff in the book that we have not talked about. Um, But I think we've talked about a lot of cool things in the book and a lot of cool things that go beyond the book. So Clausen, do you have any final words you'd like to say about either the conversation or anything in it and, or uh, Passerilla or just any kind of a closing remarks of power?
1: Uh, good question. Uh, I think no matter what, uh, I am right. I can <laughs> buy that book on Amazon. You will regret not doing this decision. I cannot help you. I will not shelter you. Uh, and uh, you're on your own, bucko. <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, to be fair, I think that this book is is uh, maybe for a niche audience. I maybe not. It's definitely something that I I tried. I attempted something that I, I think was a blend of what I already created mm-hmm. and something maybe uh, kind of the, the maturation. Mm-hmm. I, I'm pretty happy with it. There's, mm-hmm. I'm sure, at some point, I'll look back and say, uh, you know, maybe I I missed some things. But uh, I think that the, you know, I appreciate the conversation about it. I think that uh, we covered a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I would turn to you and, and ask you, because, I mean, the book speaks for itself. Uh, you, you have everything from Machiavelli to, uh, you know, to, to Dale Carnegie, to, uh, you know, Brigham Young, uh, to uh, Seneca. You know, there's, there's just a, a lot in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned a few, there's a few, I think there's two quotes from some of my friends on Twitter Mm-hmm. Uh, that I thought were just so apt and uh, they really hit the nail on the head. I just could not not put them in there. Right. Uh, they are modern poets on Twitter and I wanted to immortalize them on, on paper. But <laughs> my question for you, Service, is what do you have to say about the book or what else did you want to say about the book that we can say since I don't want to ruin the vignettes of your favorite parts, which were some of the favorite parts for me to write, especially the troll part was extremely fun to talk about. But,
0: <laughs> well, um, I suppose in a way we covered them, but I could say that this, the, as funny as the book is, and it's funny in multiple points and it's funny in many places that we weren't able to, to touch on. It's just, yeah, well, like <laughs> if things are headed where they're headed as they seem to be, like, if like if you read like Michael Anton's book, The Stakes he gives an extremely detailed account of all of the various underlying trends that like lead us to go where we're going And Like I I recorded a session on that and even that session didn't cover even all of the black pills that he had to give. And he has a few, you know, moments of advice and things that could help us like move forward or something along those lines. But uh, if it's as dark, you know, things like portend then I don't know, maybe there's no really other alternative than what you're proposing, which is to say at the very least, because even if things don't fall apart, like what if things somehow got better, are you worse off for having a posse of like approximately 12 guys or less that are like, have a tight cohesion and a tight loyalty and an awareness that they can rely upon each other? Because that kind of loyalty and camaraderie can be turned towards like almost any endeavor. And so like, even if things are like really good and like, it is just a time to grill, then like you will have awesome barbecues. Like if you follow the advice in the book, like the book alone, like you could have great barbecues because of that. Um, And so like, I don't know, maybe there's just like a way in which people who like to talk and write and read sometimes don't really feel the full weight and really feel it of like, if things are getting bad, because you could just live in like a pretty nice neighborhood or something like that, and just think, well, it's not that bad. I mean, there's like, uh, like there's like a you know rainbow flag in my kid's school, but it's like it's not that bad. But it's like been moving fast, and it chases you everywhere. I mean, even <laughs> I was talking to some people today about like the movie, the man who shot Liberty Valance, like this like Jimmy Stewart, John Wayne movie, and the ways in which like uh, th- that it's a complex movie in some sense that I think is good enough that it deserves its own conversation to it alone. Um I don't know, but there's like a way in which uh like the the maybe I could just leave it at this. Like at the beginning of the movie, there's like emphasis on the railroad and a train. At the end of the movie, there's like a railroad and a train. And it's sort of like what's changed in the American West in light of these like technological commercial developments. Um, and it's like there, there's like somehow you can't quite escape them. There's like no way out. Like it's always moving west um and so then somehow you have to face up to those developments and while those developments brought many great blessings to the american people and blessings to some extent that we could still say that we enjoy some of us some of the time you can still see how like somehow along the way that there's been some kind of great corruption and that there's like nowhere left to run like you can't you could try to run to montana but like montana itself is changing you know californians are moving there some of them are moderate but like they're still going to bring with them the hope that like well you know progressivism didn't work in San Francisco, but like it might work here or something like that. Like, so there's nowhere to run in a way. And so Poserilla, I think really is the exhortation to think like, well, if things don't work out, who can you rely upon? Would you rather be alone or would you rather have friends uh, to rely upon or something like that? It's just like a concrete way that will improve your life and give it aim regardless of what happens. If like the United States, like, you know, returns to being uh, the most beautiful and excellent country, you know, on the planet, like that would, that would be awesome. But like, so, but your advice like works. So either, like, as you said, either way, you're right. You know, regardless. That, I happens. would
1: love that. I would love if that was the case. There's to happen like that.
0: In a way. So then yeah. it's like, so if it can't, what would you do? And I don't think that enough people who prognosticate about the darkness think through the actual actions that would have to, that would be required um, to persist amongst very decadent or disorderly conditions that could come to pass.
1: You have to, you have to think low and you have to have the stomach uh, to accept the terms of your survival. Right. So I, I I think that I will only have one more thing to say. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is uh, every day you bu- you wait to build your posse's. Another day you lose. Right. And I say to to victory and to goons, Godspeed, my friends.
0: Yes. Well, Clawson, it's been a great joy to speak with you. I really enjoyed it. Um, it was it was a pleasure to like think out loud along with you about these things because I think like I'd sent you a few questions beforehand, but I think like we were able to move beyond them, but without being in a you know disorganized. Uh, you know, without being too disorganized in it. So I, I really appreciate the the time you took, and and I think that everybody should buy this book. Uh, who's listening to this? And um, I think it's really good. So Clawson, um, thank you.
1: Likewise, yes, thank you, Cerberus.
0: Well, Clawson, Smith, and Brian Cerberus Wilson out.